Good day. I want to welcome you to our second volume podcast concerning a general overview of the 66 books of the Bible. Let us go ahead and pick up where we left off in our first study in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 through 3 records God's first dispensation of time. It is known as the dispensation of innocence because mankind began his journey in innocence, but fell into sin. And as we will learn, sin is anything but innocent. God endeavors to teach us that throughout all the remaining passages of the Word of God. Genesis 1 begins with, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Two things here. The word God often in the Bible, is used to describe what we now know from his progressive revelations to describe the trinity of the Godhead. We now know from some later revelations in the Bible that the entire Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all present at the creation, or as some believe in the gap theory, the recreation of the heavens and the earth. As we said in our previous study, all that we know to exist was and is a creation of God. Chapter 1 tells us about his creation, and chapter 2 is a retelling of some of the facts and issues of his creation with a slightly different emphasis. Remember, this study is an overview, and I would, would love to be able to expand on and expound on these matters in detail, but for space and time, I simply cannot in this podcast. The truth of the Trinity of God is a fascinating subject in the scriptures. I would love to be able to expound on it here and in this part of the study, but that would take far too much time. Perhaps the Lord will allow me to put in a standalone podcast study at a later date and time. But chapter 3 records the fall of man into sin and rebellion. Let me explain something. The word man, as it is used in the Bible, sometimes refers to the male species, and sometimes it is used as a generic term for all human beings, male and female. It is many many times used as a term to identify the human race, both male and female. Some people who have an evil desire to criticize and condemn the scriptures attempt to use the fact that the word man is used in the Bible to condemn, and and they try and condemn the Bible as being some kind of bigoted book which is anti-woman. Well, it most certainly is not. In fact, and in reality, the Bible elevates womanhood in a multiple of ways ways which are far and away superior to the claims of unbelieving critics. But if one does not know what is in the content of the Bible, they would not realize that, would they? Unbelieving critics of the Bible, for the most part, rely on men and women's ignorance or their lack of knowledge of the Scriptures to condemn the Scriptures in their perceptions of the Bible. Unbelieving critics make false statements concerning the Word of God, and then they expect people to merely accept their lives 
And many do so because they do not really know the truth for themselves. Unbelieving critics scurry about claiming, well, everyone knows the Bible is full of errors and mistakes and it cannot be believed as truth. My friend and I have been studying the Bible extensively in detail for 45 years from cover to cover. And I have yet to find one error or one single mistake. And if anyone can find them, they're welcome to email me and tell me where those mistakes and errors are found. Well, in truth, there are none. Okay, on with our study. The context of any word in the Bible, or the definition of any word in the Bible, is determined by the context, that, that is, in the way it's used in the Bible. If or when I use the word man in these studies, I am not, and the Bible is not, excluding women or assigning a woman or women to a lesser place of importance in the plan and program of God. Now, I felt I needed to explain that and God's use of the word man in the scriptures. And I think I need to do that because of all the convoluted gender controversy that's present in today's society. Controversies that have been created by unbelieving critics. Unbelieving critics often use genetics to attempt to prove some of their unbelief. And that is if they think it supports some point of their unbelief. But they also tend to discount genetics when they do not. God in the beginning created them male and female. And there has never been born anything but a person who is either male or female. No woman since the beginning of time has ever given birth to a gender neutral human being or an it or an other. It's becoming more common for legal forms when asked if you are male or female to include the word or other. There is no other and there never has been. God in his wisdom placed some very different biological and physiological differences between a male and a female and those differences are undeniable. None of the desires or emotions or compulsions of anyone are going to be able to change those basic traits of his creation. Well, back to Adam and Eve. God uses the account of the fall of man to teach us something very important concerning the personal righteous nature of God and the destructive power of sin. All of mankind was cast into darkness because of one sin, one single act of disobedience to God, just one. God is a loving and compassionate God, but He is also a righteous God. And because of His righteous nature, sin cannot and will not be allowed to go unaccounted for. He could not, His righteous nature would not and cannot overlook the disobedience and sin of Adam and Eve. Neither does he overlook it today. But what that did was allow God to embark on a divine plan to bring all of mankind to redemption and forgiveness. In Genesis, 
we are shown the destructive and damning power of sin. But we are also shown the loving and forgiving, long-suffering nature of God. Something that is never recorded in Genesis is Adam and Eve admitting to God their sin and asking God's forgiveness. Not one time are they said to have been repentant. Instead, Adam tried to blame it on Eve, and Eve tried to blame it on Satan. It is never recorded in the Scriptures that they ever admitted to God that they had sinned. And we are left to wonder, what if they had admitted their sin and asked for forgiveness? Instead of trying to excuse and cover their sin, would things have turned out differently for mankind? Well, I'm afraid we'll never know the answer to that. But Adam and Eve attempted to do what men and women do today, thinking that they know more than God. They try and hide their sin from God as if He is not the all-knowing, all-seeing God that He is. Repentance is simply this. It is a change of mind. In the case of salvation, it is a admittance of sin. We changed our mind from believing something different towards agreeing and believing what God has revealed to be true. Repentance is not an emotional feeling of sorrow. It is an honest and outright admission to God of our sin, agreeing with Him that we are sinners and we have sinned. It is admitting to God that what He has said in His Word, that all have sinned and come short of, the God, of God, is absolutely true. Now, all throughout the remaining scriptures, God repeatedly gives us examples of the power, dominance, and destructive powers of sin and the disobedience. It is even illustrated in the animal kingdom and the violence and chaos inside that kingdom. God has given us pictures or illustrations all throughout nature that illustrates his revealed truth. Up and until after the flood, all of God's creatures, including mankind, were vegetarians or herb eaters. I suppose that is why those animals could coexist inside Noah's ark and not eat one another or Noah and his family. After the flood, God changed the digestive systems of both animal and mankind so that they would be allowed to become meat eaters. He gave permission to mankind to eat the meat of animals without restrictions except drinking the blood itself. There were meat restrictions given later to the Jews, but those restrictions were never given or binding on the rest of mankind, that is the Gentiles. They were meat restrictions given to the Jews alone under the law of Moses, and those restrictions were never binding upon Gentiles. The population of the Gentile peoples were never given any meat restrictions. As a result of this transformation, the fact that God changed the very digestive system of both man and many animals, we can have a picture of the destructive and soulless nature of sin that comes into view even in the animal kingdom. Picture a baby gazelle, 
which is really just a small version of a deer. Picture that little gazelle out in the wilderness, just bouncing around out in the grass without a seeming care in the world. And suddenly a vicious lion comes out of the brush, grabs that baby gazelle by the throat, suffocates it to death, and then eats it without any remorse and without any pity. That sight and many, many, many others is a life-size picture of the harsh, vicious, and devastating effects of sin. The hideous effects of sin is pictured everywhere in many of the soulless conditions of the animal kingdom. Yet as vile and dark and repulsive as sin is to God, Paul said that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. The loving grace of God has been offered to all of mankind in the form of redemption, forgiveness, and eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the first dispensation, the dispensation of innocence. The second dispensation is chronicled in Genesis 4 through 8. It is known as the dispensation of conscience. Genesis records how mankind as a whole made a choice and chose sin over the will of God. Two people left the Garden of Eden and the human race grew to perhaps as some have speculated, billions of men and women by the time of the flood. Adam and Eve lived a long time after the garden and had many, many more children than just the three which are recorded in the first chapters of Genesis. But this is what happened to those children. Genesis 6, 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's called the dispensation of conscience because mankind followed the conscience of his sin nature and not the will of God. He, she ignored and forsook the truth of God and imagined their own ways in life, ways which are in rebellion or were in rebellion, against the will of God. Let me assert this. Before we had the written and completed word of God, God had communication with mankind on earth in some manner, before and after the flood. Many women before the flood knew what their responsibilities to God were, but they chose to go their own ways and imagine their own path and imagine their own course of life instead of following the communication of God. We do not know how or in what form and manner God made those communications, but he did make them. The ways and means have not been revealed to us. But the hows are not important. What is important is the fact that they had knowledge of God and his will, but they made a conscious decision to forsake his will and go their own way. It is taught in the Bible that mankind, because he or she is a sinner, if they're left to them, to his or herself, will always choose sin over the will of God. That scene played out throughout the entire word of God. Mankind chose sin, and as a result, he, she chose the consequences of sin. 
In Genesis 6, mankind stood on the brink of annihilation. If it had not been for the righteousness of one man in this family. Listen to what he says. And it repented the Lord that he made man on earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Both man and beast and the creeping things and the fowls of the air. For it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God's repentance here has nothing to do as as far as in the sense of regret because he realized he made a mistake. We now know that all this worked in and through the foreknowledge and counsel of God. That is kind of a long involved study and I I suppose it's too long to go over in this brief overview but Suffice it to say that God never made and never makes mistakes and nothing has ever taken him by surprise. The Bible says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now because of the righteousness of one man and his family, the human race was allowed to continue. The world of unbelieving mankind has no idea how beneficial to all this present world is the presence of God's people on this earth. In our last study, we cited some things that were given as reasons for young people forsaking their faith. One of those things was religion is the opiate of the people. In other words, they were taught and convinced that instead of being the salvation of mankind, faith or religion, is actually the enemy of mankind. But that is a vile and vicious lie right out of the despicable pits of hell. The presence of righteous men and women on this earth is not the opiate. It is perhaps the most beneficial element upon the face of this earth to the world of mankind. It is taught that there is coming a future event that we call from a Bible standpoint, the rapture of the church. In that rapture, every saved man and woman will be taken up out of this world and called up to be with Christ in heaven. But after the rapture, the world of mankind in the absence of God's people will be cast into dark, destructive, and horrendous times known as the tribulation. Jesus said, for then there will be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Time will fail me to try and explain all the terrible devastations and destructions which will come to the populations of the earth during that time. But at the end of it, after the tribulation, which is going to be in and of itself a terrible, dreadful time for mankind. Paul said, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, 
when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you would believe in that day. After the tribulation will be a time when Jesus returns to claim his kingdom and his throne upon this earth. He will destroy at that time his remaining enemies, those who are the enemies of God that were not killed or dying during the tribulation. And he will declare his kingdom to be in force. Now, from a very real point of view, instead of hating and maligning and criticizing and condemning God's people who are present on this earth, Unbelievers should be thankful we are still here. For when the time comes that the body of Christ is taking, taken up out of this world, men and women will face a devastation unknown to the human race since its very beginning. Now I'm not saying any of this to teach these matters from a heart of spider vengeance, but actually from a heart of love and compassion and concern for the souls of every lost unbeliever in this world. No one, no one has to face the prospects of that out in the future. Nor do they have to face it out in eternity. Jesus Christ came to save any and all who will place their faith in him and accept his sin payment for their sin. My friend, anyone, anyone can be delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. In Jesus Christ, there is 100% peace and hope and safety from the wrath to come. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I remember watching a detective series where the police were investigating some kind of off-the-wall religious organization. And one of those officers said that the religious theme of this organization was hell. Well, when he said that, another policeman spoke up and said, Really? Whatever happened to love thy neighbor? Now that line was put into the script try and discount the truth of the future accounting of sin and judgment of God that is to come. I suppose the writers of that show have been duped into disbelief in the righteous requirements of a holy God. And into a disbelief or into a belief, actually, of the false narrative that says God is a loving God and as such he would never punish sin. Well, the truth of the matter is, he has in the past, and he will most definitely in the future. As we said earlier in Genesis, God forbid mankind from drinking blood in Genesis. He said the life of the body is in the blood, and he put a special incentive in mankind's digestive system to help prompt him to not drink blood. Pray animals who eat raw meat and drink blood have some very potent acids which will kill any bacteria 
in the blood that they eat and the raw meat that they eat. Men and women do not have those acids. I pray animals for, say, like, for instance, a lion can eat raw meat, lick up the blood of its prey, and not face any adverse effects of that because of the stomach acids they have. Mankind cannot do that. Men and women do not have those acids. There are multiple of illnesses that we can contact from raw meat and blood. And thus, it is wise and very incentive that we do not eat or drink blood. Those are the first two dispensations. The third dispensation that's recorded in Genesis is recorded in chapters 9 through 12. It is known as the dispensation of human government. After the flood, God placed the 16 sons of Noah, or grandsons, I'm sorry, into 16 regions of the earth, And he gave them the right of self-government. They were to live inside certain boundaries that God had set for them. And they were to live in peace with their surrounding nations. And they were to follow the moral law of God that he set down for them. But that didn't last long. And I'd recommend anyone uh, to read the book of Romans chapter 1 to see how all of that turned out. But the God of heaven created or ordained human government. He gave men and women the right to organize themselves into nations and to create for themselves certain forms of governmental organizations. But those governments are commanded to be organized according to the determined moral laws of God. Governments were not given to be lords over the people, but servants of the people in the oversight of the moral law of God. The problems come when governments are considered or spoken of as entities in and of themselves, and they are not. There is no such thing as a living entity or self-existing entity known as government. Nowhere on the face of the earth. You will never be able to walk up to an entity called government and introduce yourself to it and shake hands. Governments are comprised of men and women and the goodness of any government will rest in the goodness, honesty, and righteousness of those men and women. Governments are systems of organized men and women who have been vested with the oversight of the good of the people. Now that good is supposed to be to emanate from the set of moral laws of God and not the vain imaginations and evil philosophies of men and women. Individual or groups of men and women do not get to decide what is good for the masses of mankind. And that's already been determined by the revealed will of God for mankind. When those men and women in government are deceived into evil knowledge and philosophies, then the government will cease to function as they should for the good of the people. Once again, government does not get to decide what the definition of the good of the people means that has already been defined in God's revealed word. Atrocious and tyrannical men and women have since the beginning used the words for the good of all the people 
as a deceptive excuse for their tyranny in and among the people. They decide what is best or good for the people, and they govern and then set out to impose their will on the people. They then become the standard of definition and good and not the compassionate will of God. And of course, anyone who disagrees with their definition of good, whatever that may be, is not considered worthy of freedom and sometimes life itself. Human government was given to mankind for the good of mankind and not tyrannical enslavement. We do not exist to be slaves or subjects of a king or system of government. Governments were ordained of God for the express good of the people. It is an organized effort ordained of God and that is a principle taught all throughout the word of God. Yes, the state of a human government was given to mankind by God. But it was expressly given with the condition that the men and women inside that governmental organization exist purely and sorely for the good of the people. Well, we'll conclude this part of our series with the first three dispensations. We'll pick it up with the fourth, the fourth dispensation as it's chronicled in Genesis, known as the dispensation of the patriarchs. Once again, God bless you, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.